from the Gospel of John, the 10th chapter, verses 22 to 29. At that time, the festival of the dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I have told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name testify to me, but you do not believe, because you do not belong to my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. What my Father has given me is greater than all else, and no one can snatch it out of the Father's hand. The Father and I are one. The Jews took up stones again to stone him. And Jesus replied, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these are you going to stone me? The Jews answered, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, though only a human being, are making yourself God. Jesus answered, Is it not written in your law, I said you are God's? If those to whom the word of God came were called God's, and the scripture cannot be annulled, can you say that the one whom the Father has sanctified and sent into the world is blaspheming because I said, I am God's son? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Then he tried, then they tried to arrest him again, but he escaped from their hands. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. One of the most positive and comforting images of God's care for us is that of the shepherd. Its most familiar expression is Psalm 23. I learned this psalm in the King James, Ver King James Version, as I'm sure many of you did too. I'm going to recite it, but I ask you to join in in reciting it with me, if you know it in the King James Version. <laughs> Otherwise, listen to the sound of voices reciting this song of comfort and promise. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want he maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. 
Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Centuries later, in the Gospel of John, Jesus claims this moniker of Good Shepherd for himself. I am the Good Shepherd, he says. The Good Shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I know my own, and they know me. And continuing into our passage for today, my sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one, no one will snatch them out of my hand. We may have never seen, heard, touched, or smelled a live sheep, but when we hear these words, we are assured, we are reassured, even if just for a moment, the Lord is my shepherd. Though she passed away a week ago Friday, it was only this morning that her local newspaper announced her death. Prior to that, it was announced only on the funeral home website. It read as follows. Margaret Isabel Haupt, 75, passed away Friday, April 8, 2016 at the Dennis and Donna Oldorf Hospice House of Mercy after a lengthy struggle with cancer. Services are pending. Arrangements are with Stuart Baxter Funeral and Memorial Services, Cedar Rapids. Undoubtedly, the reason services are pending is that Margaret Haupt never married, never had children, outlived her disabled brother, her mother, her father, and the woman with whom she lived for over 30 years, who died this past October at age 93. But Margaret Haupt was one of many members of churches that I have served, whom I have, who I'm, whom I have admired and who have influenced my thinking and therefore my faith. Margaret grew up as a child of the manse in rural Kansas. She once told me that whenever missionaries on furlough would come to speak at the Presbyterian church where her father was the pastor, she was enthralled with these visitors from faraway lands. A top student in her high school, when she graduated, she set out for the University of Denver, to study international relations under Dr. Joseph Corbel, the former Czech diplomat 
who was father to Madeleine Albright and mentor and teacher to Condoleezza Rice. Margaret Hout became an expert in the Soviet Union, particularly the underground poets and writers who protested, often at cost to their lives, the system of Soviet communism. She took her first and only job teaching at Coe College, a small Presbyterian college in Iowa, where she taught undergraduates many of whom were first-generation college students in a quiet Midwestern town which shared with the Soviet Union only the coldness of winter. Margaret Haupt published little, focusing instead on teaching the handful of students who came off the farm and wanted to learn about the larger world and landed in her classes on international relations. I became pastor of the church of which she was a member a few months after the invasion of Kuwait. I turned to her to help clarify my thinking on our nation's response and what I as a pastor should say or not say. Eleven years later, I did the same thing after 9-11. On that occasion, as she was beginning phased retirement, we sat in her small office on the campus of a liberal arts college in a state that has no major military installations, that has a history of electing senators skeptical of military intervention, and a state that has a greater percentage of voters who are religious pacifists than probably any state in the Union. Yet she looked at me from her desk and said, Our government has to respond. We have no choice. One of the major reasons governments exist is to protect their people. When I told her that I had already been invited to sign letters decrying any mistreatment of Muslims in light of 9-11, she immediately said, we must not hold all Muslims responsible for this attack. We must protect their rights. That is who we are as a nation. In the last few years that I served as pastor of her church, Margaret's worship attendance waned. I remember her once saying that she had studied so much evil in the world, oppression and torture and tyranny and war and violence and genocide, that she often went through periods in her life where it was difficult to keep her faith in God even though she acknowledged that it was missionaries who had led her to her vocation. She said, I read Reinhold Niebuhr, and I believe in original sin, but I'm just not sure there is a way out. When my wife Maggie learned of Margaret Halp's death earlier this week on Facebook and shared it with me, Margaret Haupt has been on my mind 
in connection with today's passage and sermon, both because I respect her and mourn her death, but also because of her counsel not to, re- not to hold all Muslims responsible for 9-11. Here's the connection with today's passage. You see, in the book of John from which we read today, the Gospel of John, There are some of the most beautiful and reassuring passages in all of Scripture, particularly the passages describing Christ as the Good Shepherd. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. But this same Gospel of John has some of the most troubling passages, at least in the New Testament. In addition to drawing a picture of Christ as the Good Shepherd, John also uses some of the harshest rhetoric of any Gospel writer, specifically about the Jews who do not accept Christ as Messiah, and who in conjunction with Roman officials arrange for his death. Now there is no doubt that the bulk of Jewish people in Christ's time did not believe him to be the Messiah for whom they were looking. Though many, including some of his early disciples, became his followers. There is also no doubt that Jewish authorities were involved in Christ's death. These are established facts, at least according to any reasonable definition of fact. But by the time John writes, 40 to 60 years after the death and resurrection of Christ, The tension between those Jews who follow Jesus as Messiah and those who do not is intense. In this situation of intense hostility and division among different and established factions of Jews, the otherwise wonderful writer of a gospel cannot help but add invective to the tense and poisonous atmosphere in which he writes. For example, John lumps all Jews together as enemies of Christ and therefore as enemies of God. In one place, John attributes Christ as saying to Jews, You are from your father, the devil. It is a passage which, according to scholars, was later used to develop anti-Semitic tropes throughout the Middle Ages. It was used in Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice. And it is used on website after website in our world today. Furthermore, in the 21 chapters of John's Gospel, John uses the phrase, the Jews, Seventy times. That is more than three times per chapter. And almost all of his uses of the phrase are pejorative. The Jews, the Jews, 
the Jews. It is John's unfortunate characterization and dismissal of the Jews that connects with Margaret Halp's advice not to hold all Muslims responsible for 9-11. Thus, what we see in John's Gospel is something that is not too foreign from us today. John's tendency to lump all Jews together and then to dismiss them with a fair amount of venom resembles our tendency to group those with whom we disagree or with whom we are in serious conflict into one large group and then dismiss them. We obviously see this on the campaign trail. The Muslims, the Hispanics, the police, the protesters, the blacks, the big banks, Wall Street, evangelicals, the 1%. But we also see it in our conversations, in our schools, and in our neighborhoods. Those are the private school kids. Those are the public school kids. They're old. They've lived on this street a long time. They're young. They want to change everything. They're the free lunch kids. They're the honor students. When any groups, particularly ethnic, class, racial, or religious, are in tension with one another, when they are under stress, when they are trying to sort out their identity in the context of other groups, they often fall into such rhetoric, which is not only intellectually sloppy, but is also divisive and can sometimes lead to deadly results. Aware of all this, Margaret Haupt said, I read Reinhold Niebuhr and I believe in original sin, but I just don't know if there is a way out. With all due respect to her passing and to her assessment of the human condition, which I share, I believe there is a way out. When she made this statement to me probably 20 years ago, I was a younger minister then, and I didn't much have an answer. But I want to share an attempt at an answer now. Part of the answer to this statement, to this way out of a bleak assessment of the human condition and the world around us, comes through our using the mind that God has given us, particularly in using it in the way we read the Bible or study the Bible or prepare and teach the Bible or listen to sermons or listen to teaching. When we open the Bible, particularly the New Testament, or when we hear it taught or preached, we normally expect to learn about Jesus and to learn about life. We expect to learn who He is, and we expect to learn what we are to do. 
In this regard, we are hardwired for the Bible to function as a pair of glasses, a lens, through which if we focus hard enough, we can see Jesus and we can learn what we are to do. This way of reading and hearing the Bible works most of the time. But sometimes when we open the Bible, it serves not so much as a lens through which we see Jesus, but a mirror through which we see ourselves and our world. As we stand before the mirror of Scripture, we see our inherent beauty, just like we sometimes do when we stand before the mirror in the morning. But most of all, we see things that we don't really want to notice. Dark circles of fear and loathing. Anger emanating from our bloodshot eyes. Wrinkles of rage that have formed across our face. Thus, when we hear the gospel writer John dismiss the Jews, the Jews, the Jews, we have, so to speak, met the enemy. And they are us. When the scriptures as mirror lead us to see ourselves and our society both in its beauty and in its fallenness, in both our capacity to accept and our capacity to reject, the scriptures create an openness for us to change, to make changes in our lives that are not merely cosmetic. Reading the scripture as a mirror can thus be the first step out of the original sin that Margaret Haupt articulated, but beyond which she had trouble moving. So if the first step begins in the mind... The second step is a matter of the heart. The words describing Christ as shepherd can provide us enormous personal assurance with which we can make the changes we need to make. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. These words convey to us that no matter what condition we live in, no matter what we have done, no matter what has been done to us, we belong to God. We belong to Jesus Christ and nothing, nothing, nothing will snatch us out of His hand. When we receive such assurance, when we believe it, when we claim it for ourselves, when we literally take it to heart, we are much less inclined then to keep the neighbor at bay. Such assurance is better than anything I know to provide us a pathway out of the hateful language and the invective that leads us to lump people together under one pejorative title, the Jews, the police, the Muslims, fill in the blank. No one will snatch them out of my hand. 
The assurance behind this promise is the best way I know out of the fear and anger we see running too rampant in our history, in our world, and more than we care to admit, even in our own lives. No one will snatch them away. Amen.